a podcast for the pop culture obsessed and the people who love them. You came back. Thank you. Um, Believe me, I had a lot of notes for myself after that first episode, but damn if I didn't have a good time doing it too. We'll find our groove. I know this. It's like when a new housewife joins a cast and she has to find her sweet spot uh, in the show and in the group of friends. I, I'm going to find mine too. It really was fun. And the response was so heartwarming. Thank you so much to everyone who shared with me if it made you laugh or smile or was a little bright spot in your day because that is honestly the point. It really is. And it really warmed my heart. The thing about Scorpios, other than the fact that they will constantly tell you that they're Scorpios, sorry, it's like what we do. One of the things is that we're known for having kind of a hard exterior and a super gooey soft interior. So really it it like touched me and I am just so happy. It was, it was really great. And I also wanted to give a special shout out to all of the people, mostly women who reached out to let me know that they are also bewitched by a certain British man with a penchant for kiwis and watermelons and cherries and bananas and wanted to let me know and Tia too that they felt seen and heard by us. And I want to tell you, you are seen and you are heard. And also to anyone who didn't understand that, thank you for not um, having Tia or I committed. That is also appreciated, but I love, I love how many people I heard from you guys. I was not kidding. It's insane what can happen to you. So, uh, I also wanted to say that I have this idea of you playlist and it, uh, I usually send it to my friends when they read Robin's book or are get into that real like hairy space. It's like a little care package. I told you, I like to really push push my stuff onto people. Um, Anyway, I made it public on my Spotify, which is just Abby G. I think you can search by that. And it's obviously Harry's music, which if I wasn't clear, I am a huge fucking fan of. Um, It's, it's, he's so talented and the music is a lot of the stuff that influences him is, is music that I've been listening to my whole life. Cause I really am like a, Laurel Canyon hippie in my heart. Uh, my my top artists on Spotify last year were Taylor, Harry, Fleetwood Mac, and The Grateful Dead. So, you know, we all contain multitudes. Uh, anyway, so it has a lot of his music, uh, music that he has inspired, music that inspires him, which includes a, like, you know, like Stevie and um, Wings and Joni Mitchell and Crosby, Stills and Nash, like music that is like in my soul. So that I love. And then obviously a little dash of one D gotta have that. And, and some other songs that I just thought made sense. So anyway, yeah. So that's, I am a person who does things like that, like makes playlists for people to force them to like the things that I like, but that is, that is on Spotify for all of you that reached out again. I see you. Um, seriously. And thanks to everyone for hanging out with me again. This is, um, it's so dope. And it made me think of one of my favorite clips of Dave Chappelle on a late night show. It's one of my favorite interviews with him. And he is talking about 
the early days of Chappelle's show and Kanye came to the set and they were showing him sketches that nobody had seen, like the Rick James sketch or something. And at some point he gets a phone call. So he kind of like steps away and Dave hears him talking to whoever it is and explaining where he is and why he can't do whatever it is they're asking him to do. And he hears him say, because my life is dope and I do dope shit. And it's just like such a perfect quote. It's fantastic. Kanye, complicated figure, obviously. But that quote is perfection. And kind of in my own little way, that's how I feel right now, which is awesome. So thanks for listening. And I'm so excited for my guest this week. She's a good friend of mine. She's a writer. She's really smart. She's very funny. Uh, Michelle Ruiz. And we're going to talk about a couple of Oscar contenders that we love and also the royal family. So we will be right back with Michelle. My guest this week is another fabulous writer and an even better friend who, and and really sister in a lot of pop culture psychosis, uh, who I first met when I interviewed her to work with me at Cosmo many years ago. The love was instant. The bond has only grown stronger over the years in many ways because of our shared loves and obsessions. Uh, we also tend to get deeply annoyed by the same types of people and things, but we're going to leave that for the non-public domain. And yes, I have indeed forced more than a few of my own fandoms on her, and she still loves me. Thank God. Michelle, as I said, is a writer. She has written for everyone from the New York Times, like Cosmo, Marie Claire. She contributes regularly right now at Vogue and Vanity Fair. She wrote that really awesome cover story of AOC for Vanity Fair last fall that if you haven't read, you can read online. And she has spent nearly as much time analyzing the royal family as I have and is also always taking a cultural trend and dissecting it in new and interesting ways, like she did with uh, one of her most recent Vogue pieces called Why Does It Have to Be Meghan Markle versus Kate Middleton, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. So welcome, Michelle Ruiz. How are you? Hi. This That was honestly the nicest intro that anyone's ever given me in my life. So thank oh, you please. for making my day. Um, no, it's, it's all true. The, tr- the truth of the matter is that we are sisters in psychosis. That's, there's, that is indisputable. It's true. It's true. And it's it fine. Is, it's and fine. And it's great. I mean, our texts, you know, we, I mean, they give me life. And then now I get to just like translate them onto this show. So yeah, we, we would be doing them this and share anyway. them with the world. Yeah. What, we would be doing this anyway via like Instagram DM, Twitter DM, and text all simultaneously. All at the same time, which I feel like is we're really good at multitasking because we will not even joking, be carrying on conversations on three platforms at the same time about like kind of three different topics, but like, you know, but all related. Like a, all We're related. multimedia. We, we are, are. We are. We are multimedia. We're so modern. <laughs> so modern. <laughs> well, speaking of media and entertainment, the Oscars are coming up, which is super weird because it's April. And I mean, but what even is time? Bizarre. Like, it's, not, I don't know what this construct of time is, was already weird. And now it's been like imploded by the past year. So typically we would be well done with award season by now, but it's still happening. Like the BAFTAs just happened. And, um, 
I mean, really for me, it was, I, I miss going to the movies. I miss movie theaters. I love to go to the movies by myself. It's one of my favorite things to do. I can sometimes, I sometimes go like two days in a row, like a Saturday and a Sunday, typically during that time in between Christmas and New Year's, I would go every day and like catch up on all my awards show fair. That didn't happen. I've been kind of struggling, not because of the movies, but just because of me to kind of get through all the things I want to see. But I know there's a couple things that we both loved. But like, what's it been like for you? Like watching from home and that whole thing. I feel like I'm behind, you know, I feel like I'm behind. Yeah. And and same where like in recent years, I had taken up this sort of, um, as my coworker at Vogue called it, like a Don Draper activity of, I would take off a week of work before my family was off. And I would oh. essentially use that time to go to the movies alone in the middle of the day. The best. Um, she was like, that's very, very Don Draperian of you. <laughs> but it's or Carrie Bradshaw too. It's like Don <laughs> Draper or Carrie Bradshaw. I mean, I would then try to like get a friend to play hooky and have lunch with me after like going to see Call Me By Your Name at the Paris or whatever. But and have wine and like a nice lunch leisurely lunch yeah after. I mean yeah. I love Oscar movies I always have since I was a kid to the present and this year is really kind of weird but that being said I did have an amazing experience um I had an amazing experience. I hadn't really watched a movie in a while and just like sitting down on my couch with my feet up and watching Nomadland. Yeah. Sort of like the beauty of that movie just in the comfort of my home kind of like washed over me in a really great and gorgeous way. So that was actually like one counterpoint to my like missing going in the movies. I was like, okay, like this was actually great. It's so, I mean, that movie, I mean, I, I, it would have been so stunning to see on a big screen, of course. Yeah. But I mean, I, I have a pretty big TV. You have a pretty big TV. So it's not like I watched it on a, my phone, you know, but I think it's so starkly beautiful. I mean, it's like the, I guess we should talk about what it's about. for. Um, so uh, it's directed and written and edited by Chloe Zhao. And it's starring Frances McDormand as a woman who is houseless. She uh, is living out of her kind of tricked out van. It's her home. She's living this nomadic lifestyle. I feel like you, when we were talking about it, you had a great, you, you know, she, she her this town she lived in just disappeared basically in the, in the great recession. Right. It's yeah. from 2008. Um, and now she's on the road and she works kind of these seasonal jobs that, um, at like an Amazon factory and other places. And there's kind of this group of people, a lot of them older, um, living this lifestyle and it, and they're in some gorgeous locations, but it's like lonely, but beautiful and poignant and sad, but also kind of inspiring at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Like what, what was your take? It is such a beautiful, like subtle sort of movie. And, we were talking about, I think how like, it just doesn't beat you over the head. You know, like it doesn't, it didn't beat you over the head with like a full fledged setup of like, this is what's going on and this is what happened. But you kind of have to like go on the proverbial journey, not to say journey, but journey <laughs> yeah. with her and like, and kind of understand. And I think like one of the things I loved about it was kind of this realization over the course of the movie where 
At first, I thought she was out there just purely out of necessity because she lost her home, her town, essentially, her husband. But then over the course, and I think that is part of it, like she was forced out of traditional life, but she also has a kind of rebel spirit that makes her not want to be part of traditional life. Like you see her at her sister's house or you see her at her friend slash maybe boyfriend Dave's house and like the world kind of seems flatter and she seems like out of place and you realize that she kind of belongs and wants to be and feels at home on the road. Yeah. It's so interesting because she, and not everyone in this, in these situations in the movie that was based on a nonfiction book, by the way, um, is, has options necessarily, but she technically does like she could go live with other people or possibly in like not to you know give away the movie but like there are there like you said like she you see her in kind of these more traditional home settings and something doesn't sit right and I think it's so interesting to explore that because we're all conditioned that like life goes a certain way right and then or it's supposed to if you're going to be happy And the way that Chloe tells this story and the way like Francis's performance is that it's not black and white. It's very nuanced. There are a lot of ways to live life and like not any single one of them is purely happy or purely sad or just, just what it's not simple. And I think that's, I don't know. There's something interesting in like female storytelling and the telling of female stories that it's, it's so, um, there's just so many layers to it and it's non-traditional even in the way they tell tell the story like you said they it's not like it starts with the town shuts down and the plant shuts down and then she gets in the mm-hmm. van you know it's like you're just dropped into her life right yeah yeah and you don't really and i think like that kind of with the ending you know my husband was like oh okay it just kind of ends and i'm like yeah it just kind of ends mm-hmm. and no no spoilers but like I think in a traditional like Western narrative, there's a beginning and a middle and an end. And like in her case, maybe she either ends up with Dave, who we need to discuss how David Strathairn is legitimately the hottest 72 year old alive. Let's just talk about it. Let's sidebar right (laughs) now. Sidebar right now. David Strathairn is hot. (laughs) Smoking. Like, you know, the minute he comes on screen and his like oh. Dylan McKay esque Baja looking, I mean, hoodie, he's wearing a Baja. Like, you're speaking to my teenage soul, rocking and it, yet and like also my old person soul. I don't know what's happening. And he's like, I mean, honestly, he's so hot that even in his like faded Baja, like awkward dad khaki shorts and like hiking <laughs> shoes, I was like, look at that fox, and he's seventy two, silver. <laughs> Fox defined. <laughs> I mean, His by the gravitas way, on screen is oh. just stunning. So I have always uh, carried a torch for Sam Shepard. May he rest in peace. And mm. I feel like I'm putting straight Aaron like in that category. Yes. Like Sam Shepard and Jessica Lang, like don't even get me started on her than Jessica Lang. But like he just, even when he was older, I was like, yes. And I was much younger then. I mean, he, but straight there and like there is, yeah, the gravitas, but he's so handsome. He's such a handsome man. And, and like Francis McDormand, he just has this like humility on screen that totally draws you in and makes you get 
lost in these characters and feel like they are real people. And it helps that they are among real people who are not actors. Like I didn't realize that until after I watched the movie, but that Swanky and yes. um, Linda May and the, these other characters in the film are, and this is a thing that I guess Chloe Zhao does is, is cast real non-professional actors and then kind of, I mean, it's pretty wild to have non-professional actors with like these two really legendary actors in terms of their talent, Francis McDormand and yes. my senior citizen boyfriend, David <laughs> Strathairn. But like, Is Daniel concerned? Is Daniel concerned? <laughs> I think he's probably prefer this to Harry Styles. Who I mean, like, you're either leaving him for Strathairn or Harry Styles. Because yes, the two Michelle's people I leave him for with me. are either 26 or 27, rather. He's 27, or 72 Michelle. He's or 27. Oh, look at the symmetry there. 27 and 72. It's either 27 or 72. And you know what? I'm I'm equal opportunity. If you sure. are literally an iconic artistic fox. I'll love you. I don't care if you're so much younger than me or old enough to be my grandpa. Amen. A fucking (laughs) man. But I think like back to more. I love you guys. I'm not, I wasn't kidding. There are many of us out there and it's, it's true. Um, But I think one of the things that when I, I kind of like sat when the movie was over and just like stared at my TV screen for really like 10 minutes, I was just like struck by the emotion and like power of the movie. But also what what I said to, I don't know if it was you or someone else right after I watched it was it just felt so real. And like you, I, I tend to not, when I know I really want to watch something, I don't really read about it before. I don't like to read reviews or anything because I want to just experience it. And then afterward, I go back and like devour like everything from the New Yorker and New York Times and Vulture and all that stuff. But it, it just felt so real. And then I'm like, oh, because these are real people that aren't actually professional actors, but they like create this. You feel like you really are just dropped into their lifestyle. And there was like this bar scene, this small town bar that I was like, oh, that feels like a Knights of Columbus at like a small town in Indiana, like where my mom was is from, you know, like it's it's just so interesting in the way Chloe like creates that atmosphere is she's like a true, she has a true aesthetic and she's like a true auteur. And I love that she's getting so much credit. I mean, I think the Oscars are coming up. She has to be kind of the odds on favorite for best director. I mean, the Oscars could do anything because, you know, they get weird sometimes, but she, I would have to say she seems like probably the odds on favorite right now, wouldn't you say? Yeah. And I really hope she wins. I think she really deserves it for so many reasons. Just because of how artistic and beautiful and subtle this movie is. And also because it really feels very connected and very timely. Like there's always something about a movie that, that feels like it's very much, you know, speaks to what's going on in the world right now. And just the idea, like you said, of a lot of these nomads being older people who are kind of like totally unsupported by the American system. Um, and like that, you know, that are like one job loss away from being houseless. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was like dying when they were in the Amazon factory and, and like, I was like, wait, how did they get in there? They gained entry to the Amazon factory. It's crazy. And I guess Francis, I guess Francis McDormand like wrote a note to ask them if they could. And, and Chloe Zhao said that they had just, yeah, like Amazon had just raised their minimum wage, I think to $15 an hour. And so they were kind of like riding this wave of, of having, of being proud of something. And they were like, yeah, come on in. And like, I just felt like this, like the seasonal labor, the, 
and a recession, great recession. The isolation. The The isolation. Yeah. It just, it really spoke. I feel like it really speaks to like right now and, and I'm invested in her win and I hope it happens. Yeah. But but she is up against, yes, she is up against someone else we love, someone else we love. And like the other movie that we both watched. Yeah. Promising young woman written and directed by Emerald Fennell, who, if you watch the crown, she plays Camilla Parker Bowles, but she is not just an actor. She's a writer and a director and a producer. And she was the showrunner on the second season of Killing Eve. And I think she's fucking brilliant. I'm obsessed with this movie, which stars Carrie Mulligan. Um, how would you describe it without giving away? Because I don't want to spoil it for anyone. There's a lot of twists and turns in this movie. So how would you describe it to someone? I mean, that's such a good question of like how to describe it with no spoilers. But I think I would describe it as Carrie Mulligan as Cassie acting as this kind of one woman vigilante, essentially, who goes out to bars, pretends to be wasted, like blacked out, essentially, and gets, you know, essentially kind of like lays a trap for guys to take her home and take advantage of her. And like when they do take home this completely inebriated woman and try to feed her more drinks and hook up with her, her eyes kind of snap to, and she, in a very chilling moment, like, you know, this is the opening scene, her eyes kind of snap to, can, and like horror, chilling horror movie play, horror movie music plays. And you realize that she is actually dead sober and is sort of enacting a protest against guys who do this. And, and that is rooted in her own experience of her best friend having been assaulted in medical school. And basically Cassie has dropped out of medical school and has almost like had her life taken over by this like chilling pursuit. Right. She was such a promising young woman, right? It's so interesting because you're, it's darkly funny. A lot of times it's chilling. Like you said, there's this, the way that like color palette that Emerald chose for this, it's candy coated. It's somewhat surreal. Like the whole time I was watching it, I almost felt like, is this really even happening? Or is this like a fantasy? Like what's going on? You're just unsettled the whole time. I felt like ill at ease the way you do in like a horror movie, right? Where you're like, I don't know what's going to happen. And I'm like fascinated, but I'm like a little scared. But she, Carrie Mulligan is so, she can like turn on a dime like she does with these, these men. And, but she's also obviously like, it's, she's processing trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, in the only way that she seems that the character feels like she can. And she's also like scaring the shit out of men, which is really <laughs> yeah. kind of fun to watch. It's you know? great to watch. It's it so is. great. Like, it is. There is a total like hard candy nail polish veneer on this yes. movie, but then it's also chillingly filled with angst and like evil and darkness and... I think we talked about how it is, it's kind of just like awesome and like rad to watch like that juxtaposition. It's such a great juxtaposition, like, you know, similarly to Nomadland and that like, it's not just like one note where it's like, it looks and acts and, you know, walks like a horror movie. It is kind of a horror movie, but then like, you know, I was, there's also like hints of like, 
a fluffy like rom-com in there with like yes. moments between Cassie and um Bo Burnham. Is that his name? Yes, the Bo Burnham yeah. character. Yeah. Like in the you know, I mean the the Par- the Paris Hilton stars are blind scene. They use Paris Hilton stars are blind. It's masterfully brilliant. So brilliant. Yeah, it really was like just such a complicated, crazy, you know, really kind of like deranged character. Yeah. And I loved and I loved seeing that because I feel like, you know, it, the me- the men, the male characters, the male actors get to have all the fun with these like totally like deranged characters. But Cassie Mulligan, I mean, not Cassie Mulligan, Carrie Mulligan got that opportunity and slays. She totally slays. She is incredible. The rest of the cast is great. I mean, the casting is really interesting in this movie too. Like um, from the men who are, there's, you know, Seth Cohen and like Piz from Veronica Mars and like Schmidt from New Girl. I mean, that that kind of, you, you whether you want to or not, you, you probably have a feeling, like an emotional feeling about those actors because of their most famous roles. And like Alison Brie is so great. There's a Connie Britton moment that's so great. And it's just brilliant because it's playing on your, on those preconceived notions and then kind of turning things on its head, which I think is so interesting. It's pretty great. And I wish wish they could both win. Yeah, I know. I mean, honestly, it's kind of pathetic, but I mean, generally female directors just hardly ever even get nominated. So just the fact that they're, you know, it's always a line of bullshit to be like, it's just a pleasure to be nominated, but it is really cool just to see both of these incredible female directors just nominated and recognized. Yeah. It's better than them not fucking being nominated. That's for sure. Which would be the huge. (laughs) Get out of here. (laughs) Okay. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk about a lot of royals. Okay, so Michelle, another thing, I mean, I would say this is one of our early bonding moments was probably over our, both of our love for the the British royal family. We discovered this, I would say, so my, I want to get your history on the royals too, but mine goes all the way back to the 80s. So in a shock to no one, my young childhood was also spent like reading People magazine, devouring People magazine and like soap opera digest, frankly, and that my aunt used to bring me in the 80s. Because I also watch soap operas. Sunny, I'd be like, I don't know who Sunny or Chandler are, but I'll definitely read this cover to cover. I would read. Oh my gosh, I would read every (laughs) article. So I, my mom was like an NBC soap person. So like uh, Days of Our Lives, Another World, and then when Santa Barbara launched and Mm. made my life, starring a young Robin Wright um, as Kelly Capwell. So, but I would read, and then later I got into General Hospital, and like Sunny. And Brenda and Stone and, and, Stone and Jagger, Robin. Stone and, and Stone Robin, and Robin. everything to me. Stone and Robin and Jagger before Antonio Sabato Jr. went off the rails. Oh, Jagger! Um, <laughs> yeah, remember when he spoke at the Republican National Convention? Oh yeah, um, yeah. So oh, Jagger right. Kate's canceled by me. Yeah, yeah okay. by me. I mean, everyone else, you can think what you want, but Jagger Kate's. I'll just remember him as Jagger Kate's in the 90s. Uh, But yeah, I would read about the CBS soaps and the other soaps and read People magazine about the longest running soap opera we have, which is the British royal family. Um, And it was obviously the time of Princess Diana. And then the 
the troubles with the marriage with Charles. And then, you know, obviously I remember exactly where I was when the car accident happened. And I was, I had just gotten back to my, to Duke for my senior year and school hadn't even started yet. And we were hanging out, partying at someone's house and it was late and we turned on the TV and obviously it was everywhere. So, and, and then my, you know, I was, I loved watching Will and Harry grow up. And then I became, once they were grown, um, don't call Benson and Stabler on me. <laughs> I became a real hairy girl. At the time, it was a little contrarian, which is also my want, uh, because Will was at like prime, prime Will hotness. But I've always been a hairy mm. girl. Now, you have like, I love your like path of royal fandom. Because please tell everyone. Yeah. No, I mean, similar in that I would I would read all of my grandma's stars and inquirers. She was like a really big um, purchaser of the supermarket aisle publications, if you will. Yes. Yes. And obviously the royals dominated those. So I so even as a child and a, and then like a teen, I was I was consuming that. And and on the night of Diana's death, I was just I was home and it was like one of the last days before like, I don't know one of my last years of high school started. Sure. And watching CNN and like watched the Chiron, the CNN Chiron change Ugh. from Princess Diana injured to Princess Diana dead. Ugh. Whew. It was um, awful. It like gives really me chills still. Horrible. Terrible. Um, and like, you know, one of the craziest, like I think news moments ever, like, you know, for people that then like went into this, it was like watching that, watching that like, news ecosystem was so crazy. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the, the, my kind of modern, my kind of entry into modern Royal watching was Kate Middleton really. Um, I mean, like I'm, I watched the boys, as you say, like Wills and Harry and like, you know, like similar ages to them, William anyway. And, but when Kate came onto the scene, that was sort of what drew me in because we were both in college at the same time, you know, she, there started to be pictures and stories about her dating Prince William. I was also in my first year of college, like dating this guy. And we started to go on like a similar trajectory. We're like, yeah, they, you, you they, sure did. We sure, sure did. did. And like they broke up, you know, and started dating on and off. Like we also broke up and we're kind of dating on and off and, and then got back together and got engaged like both in 2010 and both got married in 2011. Both wore rhinestone belts to our wedding reception as everyone did that year. Yes, um, it was like, you were both very, very <laughs> on trend. I will say, I did not we, know you then, but I have seen photographs and you both looked fantastic. Both you and thing. the Duchess. It was a thing we all did, I guess. It was just what was happening. And Meghan Markle actually also did it at her wedding in, I think, I believe Jamaica. Yes, um, the wedding number so, one. <laughs> wedding number one. To Trevor. So it just kind of became this like, she became someone who you kind of go through life milestones with and is the same age as you, kind of this like royal avatar, so to speak. Yeah. But then, you know, when Megan came onto the scene, that really like blew up my interest and deepened my interest in a totally new way because I know we both just relate to her as a human being sure. so much more. And I mean, I, I think you kind of know much more about her than you do Kate Middleton, but it's like, knowing that Megan was that kind of like little baby feminist um, writing letters to Hillary Clinton and Nick and Nickelodeon news about that sexist dish soap ad and just being this outspoken, self-identified, outspoken woman just spoke to me where I'm like, I, you know, feel the same way. And I love 
I love that given the chance to marry anyone, essentially, Prince Harry's like, yes, I'm going to go with this like super self-possessed American woman. And of course, in the context of the royal family, the fact that she is biracial and divorced and was an actress just made her so unique. And and who knew how yeah. how that would then blow up? But you know, I just kind of fell in love with her as as a royal watcher. She was like yeah. the most interesting and best thing that could have possibly happened to us as royal watchers. Exactly. And I mean, and I always like loved Kate. Like I love I you know, and this we'll get into but with your piece, but. Also, just from a straight up fashion point of view, like I, Megan's style was more like mine. And also, that's an American thing. Like she has a very California casual, I mean, in her non kind of working royal duties, right? Like her off duty style. I am at this moment wearing the mother, wearing the ripped mother jeans that she wore oh. to the Invictus games. Like it's bad. Oh, I have that Everlane tote in blue <laughs> and brown. Thank you very much. Thank you Obviously. very much. Obviously. Um, I mean, again, she does her first public appearance, you know, as Harry's girlfriend in ripped jeans and a great oversized white button down and a great tote. And like, it was, it was fantastic. And I always just wanted both of those boys, like I think of the world one wanted them to be happy, right? Like they, yeah. we had watched them walk behind their mother's casket. We had watched them go through this unimaginable public uh, tragedy and trauma. And so I just was like, yes, this is so dope. Like go Harry. Um, am I going to turn into like that millennial meme? Go Harry, go Harry, go Harry. But, <laughs> um, but, you know, obviously we, we didn't know how things were going to go. And there was a lot of like hope and for, for Royal fans, like, Oh, Megan is this breath of fresh air into a stodgy in institution that had been trying to modernize even with, you know, William and Kate and Harry's work together before Megan was on the scene, but it just felt like, awesome. And the, and then the Americanness of it all, right? Like, and, and just, mm -hmm. we had interviews with her and we had, because she had been mildly famous, like not famous to the degree that uh, you become when you become a part of the Royal family, but she was on a television show, which by the way, suits is delightful. Um, and so we knew more and she had a blog, right? Like she had a lifestyle blog. Yeah. We knew things about her. She had a social media presence in a way that like you're, you, you you can't do. And I don't blame Kate for not having that. She just, she just has been in the institution for a long time. And then when Megan first started doing official royal work, it felt like she was a natural because she did have those. And she and Harry have talked about that was something they had in common was their, their philanthropic work and things like that. And she seemed to just ease right into it from a public facing way. We now know that that is not how it felt for her. Um, and hindsight is twenty twenty, and all that, but it it felt good at first, right? We were so oh, yeah, yeah. And I think looking back, hindsight is twenty twenty, where there were definitely people who always saw that this was not going to go well. Yes, I was not one of them, and I think part of that is my naivete. Where yes, mine but too. you know, Me like too. certainly when I've like worked on various stories, and like one that I have in the works where. You know, I found that particularly when I interview black women 
yeah. black women writers and, you know, professors and thinkers, they were like, there is no way not to generalize, but like from the people I've spoken to, they're like, I did not watch the wedding. I did not think this, you know, this was kind of a fantasy of even thinking that this family that has, you know, is rooted in colonialism is like the headquarters of white supremacy, hate to say it, is going to roll out the red carpet and warmly necessarily welcome this biracial American woman into their folds. And yeah, obviously based on Harry and Meghan's interview in a variety of ways that unfortunately and sadly came true. Yeah. And it was, it was, I mean, it, it's so much of, I think, Royal fandom up to that point. I mean, obviously there was a lot that we learned about Diana's situation, but it it is, it was fantasy for me, you know, yeah, like yeah. I, I was like, oh, I'm, you know, I, you know, I, it was like a running bit in my life that Harry is one of my fictional boyfriends. And, you know, I got, I literally got probably, I'm not even kidding, like 30 text messages the morning the engagement was announced <laughs> that were like, are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> like, and I'm like, the brand is strong, like the brand is strong, but, but I, I was first of all, cause I was excited for him. Cause I think Megan's awesome. And, but also I, I would just joke. I was like, well, it's not the older American woman I had in mind, but I like it. Like it's, but good, I like, you it. know, but it was yeah. obviously a fantasy and I am a white woman and I, you know, I could recognize it, but I guess I just kept hoping like, no, like this will be better. And, but then the other part of it that got just real, real, real fast was the online conversations, especially uh, before we even knew um, how Megan was feeling herself behind closed doors. You could see a narrative playing out online that really Kate and Megan themselves had nothing to do with. It was the the fans of one of them, you know, like the two groups of fans and it got really ugly, really fast. And it got really racist, really fast. And this is something that you kind of explored in your, your recent piece for Vogue. So tell me a little bit about like how, like we've talked about it so much and it's bothered us so much for so long. Um, but you really did a deep dive and you, I mean, it's a really well-reported piece. You talk to a lot of people, but, um, yeah. Tell me about kind of the impetus for wanting to like write this piece. Yeah. As I said to my editor, I was like, thank you so much for allowing me to do a deep dive on two princesses and their relationship or not. Like this is everything <laughs> yeah. to me. Thank you. Yes. Um, but uh, because I'm like, this is like barely work. It's like I'm <laughs> right. doing this for my own personal edification. But I mean, obviously we've so we've seen it. And I think it's, I don't know how well known it is if you're not like deeply entrenched in right. this in like world, royal Twitter like, and royal Instagram. <laughs> if you're not deeply and if your discover page is not filled with like Kate and Megan um, fan accounts and as well as yeah. shirtless Harry Styles, who are you? <laughs> but, not me. But, certainly not me. But I mean, I think it became very siloed where you're either a fan of one of these women or the other. You cannot be a fan of both. And the fandoms of of each kind of uh, like a core principle of them is like if you love one, you are hateful of the other. Right. And obviously not everyone, but it's pretty prominent. And so when Megan in the Oprah interview addressed that head on and said, you know, if you love me, you don't need to hate her. And if you love her, you don't have to hate me. 
that was one of the moments where like I was speechless throughout the whole thing, but I was like, oh, you know, I, I like audibly reacted to that just because I had seen it play out, you know, like personally, I write a lot about Megan, much more about Megan now than I did write about Kate in the past for all the reasons we've talked about. Um, But like, even though I'm someone who like very vocally has reported on the racism and sexism against Megan, my menchies will become, will become a bad place because it's like, yeah, right. Well, look at this article you wrote about Kate in 2016. It's like, (laughs) they get real hot, real fast. Yeah. It was like, that doesn't negate anything I'm saying about Megan, but I think it, it is very complicated and it is very layered. And I think that's kind of what the inspiration for the story was, because if you, I started to think about and talk to people about this feud narrative. And if you really start peeling it away, you see that the feud narrative encompasses a lot, right? Like basically what's bound up and wrapped up in this feud narrative, like, like there's the sexism and the tabloid media of it all where, you know, in fact, I think they're just simply not close, but, and the brothers are more so the root of the, you know, separation between the two couples and families. But really, of course, the tabloid and the, and like, there's money and profit in a cat fight. And so that was the framing that was just the knee jerk, even if it wasn't rooted, especially if it wasn't rooted as one of the, as one of the people I interviewed said, in reality, um, then there's kind of the racism that is inherent in that feud narrative because yep. Kate became like a foil. She became kind of like, here's the white prim English rose. Look at her perfectly understated hair and makeup and behavior. And then by which to cast Megan as someone who was more demanding or quote unquote exotic yep. um, and and cast her in a very racist light and kind of light, like, lay upon her this whole angry black woman trope. So that comparison really helped along that harmful narrative. Right. And like, oh, how dare she wake up and email her assistant with a task for work. That became a thing. Like she works too hard. Okay. I don't know. But I think, yeah, it's interesting. Like Ellie Hall did that great piece for BuzzFeed, right? That's gotten a lot that's that came back again kind of during the Oprah interview where they compared the tabloid headlines of literally Kate and Megan basically doing the same thing and how the headlines were very, very different. And so then that creates images in people's heads, right? So then they're like, oh, Megan is so difficult, you know? Right. And And I mean, and then the fans, the fans come to defend their, the person they like. And I can understand that feeling, especially if you're a woman of color, you want to, speak out against that but there's it's not really that kind of it's the it's the stands like the that which is which is true of like stan culture in general on the internet it's there's no it's black and white right like and i don't mean that in a racial sense i mean like you you love this person that means you hate this singer if you love this singer you hate that singer and you will right go to the mattresses you know like for for somebody but it's so complex with this with the royals and with the sexism and the racism and, and somehow it was all put on the women when, mm. when I'm sure that both of those boys can be like a real pain in the ass sometimes. Like they're because the blood they're princes, royals, right? I mean, <laughs> they're, they're the ones. Palaces. Yeah. Do we think these two women are like 100% running the show? I highly doubt it. And I mean, I think like, you know, obviously to be clear, it is way more complicated than 
don't pit women against each other. Like that right. pisses me off. It's like, yes. it's not just about, yes. it's not like we can, we can very much pit, you know, problematic fucked up women against people who are not, you know, like yes, there's Ivanka, Ivanka, the Ivankas and the Melanias and like pit me against them any day. Like they deserve that criticism. I think what's interesting about yeah, we do not fandoms, need to blindly support all women. No, like that is of not, course not. Yeah. That's not what yeah. feminism is. That's not actually what feminism is, but yeah. No. Exactly. And I mean, and that totally applies to Megan and Kate where it's like, it's not about like just simply the umbrella of don't pit them against each other, but it's about like the kind of false and like the hollow feud narrative that is here and like, who does it serve and why is it being created? And I think like what has sort of morbidly intrigued me is that the, that, that stand culture that you speak to is so kind of solidified that it's almost like the words that come out of, and I do, and I do again, understand and relate to a certain degree to like the very fiery defense of Megan because yes, like she is the subject of outsized racism. Like yes. she said herself, there's it's different to be the subject of rude, rude reports and racist reports. And like, yes. that's something that is, is not specific to her, is not, the not same. Kate yeah. Middleton. Yep. Um, and like, has Kate Middleton benefited from that same comparison that did not serve Megan? Like, yeah, unfortunately, probably. Yeah. And um, did or, Kate and have or definitely. And did Kate have shitty press in hard times? Like, especially in the beginning and weighty Katie and all that. Yes. And, and just to your point, that is yeah, different than racism. That is not the same. It's not the same. All Yeah. All this said, I think it's almost like deciding and, and like sticking to this narrative, no matter what, even the, the players themselves, the words that come out of their mouth, because I really honed in on the Oprah interview to the words coming out of Megan's mouth. Like, yes, as as people who watch the Royals and they barely ever speak, this yes. was like a huge data dump. And she kind of when she talked about that whole flower girl dress, bridesmaids dress yeah. um, interaction, she repeatedly said that she wasn't sharing that about Kate in any way to be disparaging about her, but because she wanted people to know the truth and like kind of illustrate that the way that the family and the tabloids kind of betrayed Megan at and, and protected Kate in a sense. And like Kate, I mean, Megan said, I hope that she would have wanted that corrected, you know, maybe in the same way that the palace wouldn't let anyone else negate it. They wouldn't let her because she's a good person. She said that Kate apologized. She said yeah. that Kate brought her flowers and a note and, and handled it the way that she would handle it if she hurt someone. And to me, I'm like, I don't think that Megan Markle is someone who is going to sit there in front of 17 million people and vouch for Kate as a good person if she doesn't actually believe that. So I'm kind of like, that's something to me. The words Absolutely. that come out of her mouth matter to me. Yeah, and we, and I believe her. You know, I have no reason not to, you know, and I think it's it's a very logical thing. And for someone like you or me who has paid attention to like how the firm handles PR and doesn't handle, you know, it's not handled the way normal celebrity press is handled. It It is not like you just, it's not the same kind of publicist uh, outlet relationship. And it, it's, they might not have let Kate say anything. She might've said, I want to say something. And they might've told her no. And she doesn't have the power to do it either possibly. So if Megan said she apologized, she did what I would do. If I hurt someone's feelings, which by the way, we've all hurt someone's feelings in our life and yeah. she's a good person 
and like, okay, well then I who I don't know Kate Middleton, I, but Meghan Markle right. does. <laughs> like exactly. Know? I mean, I think that was interesting, and it's interesting to be like, even though she said that, it almost like doesn't move the needle for like a certain sector of this. And, oh yeah, and it is really tricky. Like the dynamics at play are really tricky because I think like defending Kate or like projecting automatically like projecting the like assumption of goodness or nobility on Kate is loaded too because it's sort of like here we go just assuming that because she is like a beautiful white woman with Pantene hair that she is like a bastion of goodness I'm sure she is a complicated and like nuanced person as well but what I'm saying I guess in, in the story is like the words that came out of Megan's mouth carry weight to me and and it and it makes me om- almost like even more interested now about you know wh- what is the predicament that Kate Middleton is in you know if yeah. if Prince Harry and Meghan are saying that the direct heirs Prince Charles and Prince William are trapped where does that leave the wife of one of those men right and now we're about to find out like f- how much we project onto them once again uh because Prince Philip has passed away, the Queen's husband of over 70 years, uh, Harry and William's grandfather, much beloved by all accounts and and by their own accounts because they have now both released Mm -hmm. statements um, that were quite lovely. Certainly is known, like both William and Harry mentioned his wit and his humor, which has been kind of well-reported over the years. Um, But also he's... Uh, apparently not always been the nicest person. <laughs> um, and yeah, he's made some some blatantly some, racist statements. Yeah, uh, he is not always, you know, and he is of, I mean, he was n- almost 100 years old. He is also a product of a generation and he was a prince before he married Elizabeth. He's Greek, like kind of ousted Greek royalty, right? And mm-hmm. um, I will add, because this is me, he was a real smoke show also when he was younger. Real You're hot. Right. He Real really hot. looked, I didn't realize this until your newsletter that he looked so much like, like Harry, like Harry looks so much like him. <laughs> it's like I mean, every time someone would try to pull that, like Charles isn't Harry's dad shit. I would just show them that side by side of, of Philip and Harry. They're like in their like naval whites. It's very yummy. Um, I'll, I mean, put it, like, I'll put honestly, it on my Instagram, but like it's, you know, and so the boys have both, you know, Harry is now back in England. The The funeral is coming up. We're recording this before the funeral has ap- actually happened. But Harry, by all reports, is is doing isolating right now because that's UK law. He has to like isolate for five days after traveling. Megan was not medically cleared to travel by her doctor. She's very pregnant. I mean, you could see how pregnant she was in the Oprah interview time has passed yeah. since then. Um, of course I, I, we'd be remiss if we didn't say she took a lot of heat on online. Um, uh, I think she was going to get it either way. If she went, people were going to say the people who don't like her were going to say she was trying to steal the spotlight. This should be about the queen and Prince Philip. Uh, she is not going. So people like, you know, of course, Pierce Morgan and 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 uh, other people who are do not like her and have vocally not liked her are saying, oh, how can she not be there? Da-da-da. I mean, it's first of all, none of our business, some a woman's medical decisions um, about her body. <laughs> that's, that's between a woman and her doctor and presumably uh, Prince Harry, her husband. Um, so 
I think she was damned if she did, damned if she didn't. She was so damned if she did, damned if she didn't. And it's, and it's truly like, I feel like whenever you can definitively say that someone truly can't win, where if she did go, if she did go, it would be like, how dare she come back after what she, after what she did in, you know, in what she said about the Royal family and how dare she set foot here and she's stealing attention etc. Or if she didn't come, clearly it would be like, she's not coming. She's missing it um, without adding the nuance of, well, yeah, she didn't, she's not medically cleared to come. She is quite pregnant. I would not be keen to fly from LA to London while very pregnant. Yeah. Um, even if it's on a private also plane having and a, a small global child. pandemic and having a toddler right. and there's a still a pandemic like don't care yeah and also if they did fly private they'd be vilified oh, for that yes of course so like there's not a lot of ways to win quote unquote win here and and like you know it's not about winning per se in a funeral setting but just for her it just goes to show kind of literally the constant abuse that is kind of lobbed onto this woman when like she can't win she can't yeah my note my note to the royal family is like stop fucking up (laughs) please (laughs) like just a little can you just stop fucking up like a little bit just a little bit just a little bit it's like or just like big it's it's like the pretty woman line like with megan it's like big mistake huge huge that's a perfect place i feel like to end this wonderful conversation What's your, you're on Twitter. You're just at Michelle Ruiz, right? I'm just at Michelle Ruiz with two L's. R-U-I-Z. Yes. So find her there. Cause that's where you can see some of her, uh, whatever new stories you have coming out. Cause I know you have some good stuff in the works and check out this piece on Vogue. Google her name. You can find a lot of her excellent, excellent work. Thank you for coming on. We have notes. Thank you for I having you me. Much. I love you. Thank you. This is the most fun ever. Thank you so much to Michelle for that incredibly fun and super thoughtful conversation. Be sure to check out her work online and follow her on on Twitter. She really does what I think is some really interesting work in the culture space. So you don't want to miss out on that. Also, a huge thank you to everyone at Speak Studio who helps me put this podcast together because your girl is not great at audio technology and they make it all so much easier for me. So I'm so appreciative. And I also wanted to recommend a few books if you're looking to feed your royal hunger in a fictional way. Um, The first book is The Royal We by my friends Jessica Morgan and Heather Cox, who you may know as the Fug Girls from their website, Go Fug Yourself, which is an awesome, awesome website. Uh, This book is about an American girl, by the way, written before Meghan and Harry were ever even dating. So about an American girl who goes to study abroad in the UK and she meets the crown prince and they become friends and maybe more. And it is just filled with so many wonderfully rich characters that you are going to enjoy spending time with so much. I was bereft when this book was over. I was on a plane, which also already makes me emotional, but I was like very upset and because I just missed them so much, these characters. And then, thank goodness, Heather and Jessica wrote a sequel called The Air Affair. So you do get to hang out with them a little bit longer, which is awesome. And the other book is Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston, which is about the first son of America, who is the son of a female American president, 
and uh, who falls in love with a prince of England. And it is so delightful and romantic. And all three of these books are just utterly charming. And I cannot recommend them highly enough. So I hope you'll check them out. And until next week, I would love it if you indulged in some ridiculous pop culture. And I will talk to you again soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.